If you've been with us for a while, you know we've been studying the book of Acts, and so we're going to continue that study this morning and uh, talking about what the, um, what the early church was doing, what God was doing through the early church. But I wanted to ask a question as we get started this morning, and we're going to jump right in. Uh, how are we different as Christians? That's really, you know, a question worth asking, like, Many times we see our friends who aren't believing, or we see our family who aren't believing, and then we look at our own lives and we ask, how are we different as Christians? Like, what makes us unique? Some we should think about, you know, for, for proposing that our neighbors and our friends and our family should become Christians and trust in Christ, well, what makes us different from them? A whole lot of time is spent talking about that about how we can make ourselves look different or act different or be different so that we can prove there's a difference between us and the world. And today we're going to talk about maybe uh, from a different angle how we're different and maybe how we're not. So we're going to ask what we always do here. We're going to pray uh, that God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, the presence of his Holy Spirit, uh, would help us to preach and understand the word of God together. And so we want to do that together now. So pray with me if you would. Uh, Father God, we just thank you so much. I'm reminded this morning again that you that your son desired that your house would be a house of prayer. I thank you for brothers and sisters who've been praying over the service this morning and praying in our time together and praying this morning when we got out of bed to you that you would be glorified amongst your people today. I, I pray, Father, that in this time that, you know, I said the words a moment ago in your presence, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that we would learn more about the truth of Jesus Christ, your Son, and that we could apply that in our lives in a way that's glorifying to you as our Father in heaven. And so, Father, I just pray that you would do that work through your um, power and for your namesake this morning. I pray, too, for all the stuff we bring in here and all the life circumstances that can so easily kind of wear us down, that we would be listening closer to your voice in our lives than the voice of ourselves or the world around us, that we would hear that call um, to come to you, uh, to believe and to return and to stay. And so teach us this morning, Father. We trust you with the time. We, we know your word does not return void, and so we pray that you would bring a great harvest in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to go to Acts 14 today. I'm looking over here for the wrong screen side. Let's see if my clicker is going to click for me. Acts, four, Acts 14, page 769. If you use one of our Bibles, if you have your own, you can probably find it right after the Gospels. And we're going to just kind of talk, and we're going to kind of roll through here and talk about what we see in Scripture this morning, okay, as we go through. So, starting in verse 1 of chapter 14, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, to the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So as we just jump in this morning, I want to remind you that last week we saw the same thing from Paul and Barnabas going to the synagogues to teach, preach the word of God, right? This is the modus operandi, the way they're functioning in the world. They show up at a gathering. Now now get this, that's supposed to be glorifying God, but, but they begin to teach a new gospel message that this Jesus is the Messiah. This becomes the de delineating factor for the sect S-E-C-T, of the group of Jews known as Christians. And so they begin to say, that's why, you know, that this is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. And they proclaim that in the synagogues. And we see it here again, that Paul and Barnabas, these two guys, uh, show up as usual to the Jewish synagogue. And there they spoke, and I want you to catch this, so effectively 
that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed, right? So sometimes we wonder, like, is it possible to preach the gospel more or less effectively? Seems here that there's opportunities that we can do it better or worse, right? I'm a little humbled this morning when I read that, like, wow, so we're supposed to be effective gospel communicators when we talk about Jesus Christ. And they preach it so effectively that many Jews, and look what it says, Gentiles believed. This is the breaking forth of the gospel. We talked about that, the fourth promise, you know, that um, you'll be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, and, and to the very ends of the earth. And this is the fourth part, to the very ends of the earth, including the Gentiles and the promises of God which will come up again today in, in the text. But then look at, at verse 2. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Okay? And so that's, that's the first point that I wanted to talk about a little bit today is the reality that our minds can be poisoned. Our minds can be poisoned. A lot of times we think like, well, you know, I mean, everything's a fair shake. We talked about last week about how... Um, uh, evangelism is spiritual warfare, right? Like, and evangelism is like the the hundred dollar word for meaning talking to people about Jesus. Um, that it's spiritual warfare. But here's the deal: like, we hear this testimony from Scripture this morning that people's minds can be poisoned against the gospel. Against the gospel it means that someone is making an intention uh, to keep others from believing. Now, last week it was the sorcerer, remember that? And he was trying to keep the proconsul from believing. But this week, it's Jews who are not believing. It says it, look at in verse 2, but the Jews who refused to believe poisoned the minds of others. See, a lot of times you'll, you'll hear people say, you know what, man, you, you believe in Jesus, that's fine, just keep it to yourself. Don't tell people about it. But what we realize, and we should realize this not just in the biblical context, but in our own lives, like the people who don't believe the gospel are actively telling people they don't believe the gospel, right? It's not a uh, zero-sum game. It's not like they're just sitting back and saying, let people decide for themselves, right? Let people look at the earth and decide for themselves or, or talk and, you know, consider things for themselves. It's like, no, they're actively keeping others from belief. That's the desire, right? And so it's not that they're, you know, it's not that we're the only ones evangelizing, I guess. We're the ones bringing good news, but they're bringing news, um, other news. So you have this idea that uh, they're poisoning people's minds and they're stirring up the Gentiles. It's interesting. Now, get this. So just catch all the detail. Who is stirring up the Gentiles against the gospel? The Jews who wouldn't believe. They're the ones. The ones that, what's the word say? Refused to believe. It's not that they were incapable, they just refused it, right? And they become the ones that stir up the Gentiles um, to not believe the gospel either. I don't know how you can imagine the Jews stirring up the Gentiles, because there were Gentiles who had begun to practice the Jewish faith, right? That was part of the thing that was happening. They were allowed to come in and kind of be second, second uh, what is it called? Like um, second-rate citizens and worshiping God, right? They were allowed to just come and try, and hopefully by the grace poured out on Israel, they might get a little bit. But they were like second-class citizens, that's what I'm trying to think of. But here they stir them up, the Jews do, against the gospel, because the gospel is saying a whole different thing. It's saying that God gave his son for you equally. Matter of fact, you remember Paul said it's because Israel rejected Jesus, the Gentiles got the gospel. And so here's the direct relationship with God available to you and to, uh, to me, and, uh, and they're being stirred up. This idea of poisoning our minds, you know. You ever think about why before you were believing you couldn't understand the gospel? Like, do you ever think about why that would be happening? 
imagine that something's been poisoned to have you. I don't know if you ever like, I, I, I got a, I'm the bug sprayer in our family, right? Like um, I do the house treatments and the yard treatments and all that stuff. And, and like, do you ever hit a bug with poison directly? It gets a wicked scene, man. They're like, ah, you know? To think that that's what's happening before we come to know the gospel, that our minds being poisoned against the gospel, it's not a zero-sum game, that the culture is not passively irrelevant about believing or not believing. At the very best, it's condescending, saying, yeah, okay, you believe what you believe, right? It's a big deal. They're poisoning the minds. So look at verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas, at, at, at this revelation that, that they're being poisoned against the gospel, what's it say in verse 3? Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed his message, the message of his grace, by enabling them to, to do miraculous signs and wonders among them, right? So I love this about Paul and Barnabas. When they face opposition or they face like It'd be so easy to get discouraged and go, that, that person's trying to keep me from... And it just emboldened them even more. It emboldened me even more. Matter of fact, I was having a conversation recently with someone who shared with me that they thought that the truth is that a little bit of persecution is a good thing for a church. A little bit of persecution is a good thing for your faith in Christ. A little bit of pushback from someone who is actually working against you in the gospel proclamation is probably a good thing for proclaiming the gospel. The reality is that they... Uh, that Paul and Barnabas doubled down. They, they spent more time there. They spent more you know, passion for the Lord. They were more invested in what the gospel because it matters, and they knew that it mattered, and they continued to preach it. So my question, I guess, is do you or I, I'm not excluding myself from this, realize uh, how much influence others have on our faith because of our circumstance? Or our environments. Like, do we realize that, that the places we go and the people we hang out with have a huge impact on what we believe? Or is it fair to say our, our ability to believe? That they're influencers in our lives. It's not a zero-sum game. It's an active uh, conflict. Well, Paul and Barnabas keep going, and it says that they preach. And I wanted to point out one thing. Our message is a message of God's uh, charity, that we show God's charity. That means God's favor, listen, or God's grace. The, the root word for, char, uh, for grace is uh, charis in the Greek, where charity comes from. We pronounce it with a hard ch. But it means God's grace to people. It's in verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, boldly proclaiming, uh, speaking for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace, right? We all wonder often, like, what are the miracles and the signs about in the Bible? Like, why would God work a miracle in someone's life? And the testimony here is to confirm the message of his grace. You see it? That's why. That he wanted to double down this message that, yes, I'm for you, and yes, I'm with you, and yes, these others who are steering you away are not for you. And the way he did it was through signs and wonders. That's what it says in verse 3. Enabling them, Paul and Barnabas, to do miraculous signs and wonders, right? Astonishing things. This is no ordinary stuff. It's not like, again, just to delineate a bit, it's not like the sorcerer last week, right? I mean, this, is, this is stuff that people can't explain, including the sorcerer can't explain. So they have this uh, ability to do signs and wonders so that the grace, the message of God's grace can be proclaimed all the more effectively, or that people would know that Paul and Barnabas are 
speaking for God. By the way, it's not a new thing in the New Testament that God would confirm or affirm his prophets. So we have, we have that. They're speaking boldly for the Lord. He's confirming the message of his grace uh, by enabling him to do miraculous signs. And, and I just want to say, but I want you to notice that in all that stuff that's happening in Paul and Barnabas' life and all the ma- miracles that they're doing, the reality is that their proclamation is God's favor. <laughs> that's our proclamation too, Right? God's favor. God's for you. And I wanted to ask this question. Do you ever wonder, and this is a tough one, but do you ever wonder why people think that God is not good? Why would others believe that? And why would we believe it in our daily lives? Right? Because people aren't saying that God is for you, and more than that, aren't demonstrating that God is for you. See, Paul and Barnabas were showing people that God's grace was for all people, including the Gentiles. And they were active, they were um, demonstrators of that reality, I would say, right? So, now, that's why I say it's a hard question, because what I think often is the case is that people can't believe God is good because people don't think that we are good. Like, people don't believe that God is for them because people don't think that we are for them, Right? It's an interesting thought. But God wanted people to know that he is for them, and therefore he enabled Paul and Barnabas to do these great miracles and signs. All right, uh, pressing on. Check it out. Verse 4. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. Right? So, So now they've come to a crisis moment where people don't agree with each other anymore. And, and, I, and that brings us to our next point, which is this, that the gospel forces a decision. The gospel forces a decision. I almost had up there, the gospel is divisive, which I think is true. And I don't think many people are comfortable with the idea that the gospel is divisive, but I think that's a reality, right? But the gospel forces us to make a decision. It always does. It's not a passive question. It's not something you can just go, meh, you know... Does it matter? Yes. Yes, it matters. And it forced the decision. You can see that the whole city, look at this, the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and others siding with who? The apostles, those who were sent by God. And so you have this division of the people against one another because of the gospel. But what it ultimately does is it makes you pick a side. I remember whenever I was in, uh, in, I think it was grade school, I want to say, uh, they would do these really simple games where they would say, okay, everyone, if you, if you think that, uh, whatever, like Twix is the best, run to that side of the room. And if you think that Starbucks, Starbucks, Starbucks are the best, run to that side of the room. Or if you think that Pepsi is the best, run to that. And, pe- and kids would just get up and they would just make a decision, right? And they would, dis- they would separate. Well, that's the effect of the gospel, I think a lot of times when we're proclaiming the gospel, we don't want people to think they have to make a decision. You say, oh, you know. But no, it's a, it's a decisive or divisive issue. You've got to get up out of your seat and make a decision. As a matter of fact, just to remind, so that, you know, Jesus is the one who pushed back on Peter. When Peter said, you know, some say you're a prophet, and some say you're a great teacher, and all that. And he pushed back on Peter, and he said, but what about you? 
Peter, who do you say that I am? And then we have the great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a decisive question, and, and, and it's, it's required to be answered not just by cultures and contexts and people groups or communities. Uh, it's, it's, it's required to be answered on the individual level. Who do you say that Jesus is? You see, it, it comes home. It matters. It doesn't matter because of what your neighbors or your friends think. It matters because it's what you think. It's because what you are saying back to the God who's asking the question, who do you say that I am? The gospel always forces a decision. So check it out. What happens then? Verse 5. There was a plot afoot. <laughs> That's a great word in the Bible, isn't it? There's a plot afoot. Um, yeah, I'm like thinking my eyes are going bad. It really says a foot, not about. Among the Gentiles and the Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. Okay? But they found out about it, and they fled to Lyocenian Lyos, uh, cities of Lystria and Derb, and to the surrounding countryside. Check it out. So they ran away. There's a plot to kill Paul and Barnabas, and they ran. But then check out verse 7, where they kept preaching the good news. So this is Paul and Barnabas' response to direct opposition, and they're going to be killed for proclaiming the gospel. They run away. It reminds me of the Monty Python skit, right? Run away! <laughs> you know? <laughs> Just run away! But as you run away, keep preaching the gospel. <laughs> Jesus died for your sins. He's the one that God promised. Now, they get to go out and they get to preach the gospel as they are um, fleeing their own death. And so, so we have this reality uh, that's manifest in, in them. All right, picking it up now in verse 8. In Lystra, there was a man crippled in his feet uh, who was lame from birth and had never walked. Uh, he listened to Paul as he was speaking. So I almost read the rest of that, and then we'll come back and touch about this man. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and he called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. So I just want to talk a little bit about who this dude is and, and what was some, some clues that we should pick up on in the text, right? Uh, it's really, really straightforward. Trust me, this is not, uh, not a super secret thing. Uh, this man was crippled in his feet, the word says, and he was lame from birth. That means the fundamental ailment he had was he could never walk. It wasn't that he had an injury or something like that. He was never able to do this very basic human thing of, of walking. He was uh, lame from birth. Um, he had never walked, it says. He lived in uh, Lystra. Um, but then look at that. He was listening to Paul. So here's a guy who's in a bad situation, right? None of us would probably want to be in the situation he's in. But even in the situation, he's listening to what Paul is saying. Now check out what happens. Paul looks directly at him. And then sees he has the faith to be healed. Man, that is one of those verses that gives me trouble. I, I want to know, I have a thousand questions about that. In the moment, what does Paul see in this man? Is it just that he's listening? Is it that he's paying attention? Is he leaning in? Is he expect, expecting something? Is he believing something already that Paul senses? He's already believing that God is able to do this? 
I don't have the answer, because all we get from the text is that Paul looked directly at him, which, by the way, is a thing that we see the apostles do over and over again, to directly engage people, to look them eye to eye, to not shirk or pull back, or, or, but to, to really engage in what the hurts and the heartaches are. And in that moment, he sees he has faith to be healed, and so then Paul just proclaims, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumps up and begins walking around. It's a bona fide miracle. Now, you'll recall that, uh, that the, the miracle is uh, there to affirm the message of God's grace. That's what it's for. But boy, what a, what a powerful witness. I mean, what a powerful demonstration. What does it matter that he's been lame since he's birth? People would know that. Like, it would be known in the community. It wasn't just a Johnny-come-lately or something that could be set up as a gag. It would be a long con if this guy could suddenly walk, right? Like, I don't even know how you set that up. Verse 11, when the crowd who was there saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the less, I'm going to get that word today, uh, Lysonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. That's how they interpret this. The gods are here. It's finally happened. The gods are with us. They scream this out. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the one that was a gifted speaker or a chief speaker. So they're using these, their own understanding of gods, and they are, uh, they're attributed to Paul and to Barnabas, and they're, they're, they're super excited that Paul and Barnabas have come now. They're on board with what Paul and Barnabas are doing. The priest of Zeus, as a matter of fact, in verse 13, whose temple is just outside that city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. So in the middle of this holy, God-honoring, gospel-proclaiming moment, all of a sudden the people go, it's these guys. It's these two guys. And they're not guys at all. They're gods. So much so that there's a priest outside the city that goes, what? The, the gods are here? I'm going to bring my bull in and I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to bring wreaths and adore you because God has blessed us with your presence. Woo. Which brings us to our next point. We misattribute God's work. And yes, that's a real word. I looked it up. I wasn't really sure. <laughs> We misattribute God's work. That means we apply God's work to the wrong persons. We give people credit that don't deserve credit for what God is doing. You see that? Whenever the, 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 the people in the city see what's happening, they immediately go, oh my gosh, it's Paul and Barnabas. And they immediately begin to worship them. They, they want to uh, believe it's them. And, and so much so that the priest, who would, you would think would be able to discern if this is of this God or not, um, says, yes, it is, and wants to come along and kind of bring in his worship. Boy, man, that is the problem in a nutshell in so many ways. God does something awesome, and we think it's the people involved. God does something revelatory, right? Demonstrates his grace to us in a powerful way, and we immediately begin to think it's about us. That's, that's problematic. And so uh, they, misattribute, they misattribute 
the works of God. It was God who did this work. It was God who had made a lame man heal. And it was God who was calling Paul and Barnabas to preach the good news uh, to all people, right? So we tend to do this too. We tend to think that what uh, God is doing uh, has to do with who he's working uh, through. I, I want to talk about maybe some of the ways that we, that we think this is true. And I want to use some really practical examples for a moment. Like, so say, say you weren't a very good student, and there were other students who were really good students. You might look at a student and say, man, you know, God's really blessed them, and they're, they're, they're different than I am, right? Like, I'm not like them. We, we believe that, that negativity. Or, or maybe it's a friend of yours who seems to always have favor, and you look and you say, oh, it's about them. Look, look at their life, and look at what they're doing. Maybe it's in another marriage. You look at your own marriage, and you look at another marriage, and you're like, oh, it's just because they're doing it right. You know, like they're making all the right decisions, or um, they, they've, they've put the hard work in, and, and I don't. You look at other people who are parenting, and you're parenting, and you're struggling as a parent, because here's a clue, you're going to struggle as a parent, <laughs> okay? If I could just encourage you in that, and if you aren't struggling as a parent, come talk to me. I'd love to understand. Uh, same goes for marriage, by the way. <laughs> But we look at them and we say, oh, they're, they're, it's them, it's about them. But listen, it's about the grace that God is pouring out on us when we have a, a blessed marriage. It's about the grace that God is pouring out on us whenever we're doing well in life or in school or you know, um, in relationships. We misattribute God's uh, purposes, but most especially in spiritual things. I put spiritual in quotes here, right? Most especially in spiritual matters. We, we think it's about them. They're, they're holier. They, they've got it right. They're doing the right things. They're believing the right things. They're acting the right way. They're doing all these things, and, and, and they're different from us. And if only I could be like them, then God would love me like he loves them. And this is the false belief. We misattribute the work of God in the lives of ourselves and others. But notice this, uh, we only seem to do that whenever it's good things. Uh, when things are going poorly for someone, we're like, oh man, if I was like them, things would be going poorly for me. We don't give God credit for that. We don't, we don't, we don't even aspire to that. See, it's always when it's to our advantage. Which, by the way, is interesting because this uh, priest coming and bringing in this bull is very much like a... Uh, distraction from the gospel. I mean, you think about it, you think, what a great way to reach the community. If you can get this priest on board, you ever heard that? You convert the right guy. Man, you can get him to believe, then wow, the whole community is going to change. If you could just somehow bring in his faith and kind of squeeze it in next to Jesus and make something that we can worship together, boy, that would be powerful in this community, wouldn't it? They would already, they already know everything they need to know. Just add that to Jesus. So, what happens? Let's read here. Verse 13. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths uh, to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. The word in the, um, is worship. Uh, they wanted to worship. And, and here's why it's problematic. That others might try to worship us. Others might try to worship us as believers in Jesus Christ. Right? And I just want to talk practically how that happens for a second. So your life is blessed, and you recognize that, and you praise God for it. And then your friends start to say, man, if only I was like you. If I could do the things you do. Okay, wait a minute. Here's the worst thing. People begin to worship us, and how does it happen? 
we begin to say to them, if only you were like, more like me. If only you acted more like I did. If only you believed more like I did. Well, then you would be blessed too. You see? And, and we end up misappropriating the worship of God for worship of ourselves. It's problematic. It's problematic. Others may try to worship us. That could happen naturally. Wow, how do you guys do that? How do you guys parent? How do you guys have a marriage life? How do you guys, you go, yeah, could you go to church every Sunday? Like, what's going on in your life? That's bad enough, but, but what's worse is whenever we stand there and we, we, we receive that, you know, and we're like, yeah, you're right, and if you were more like me, God would love you more too. If you were a better person, God would make you a Christian. You know what I mean? Like, if you were to church on Sunday, God would make you a Christian. If you acted the right way, if you weren't such a charlatan or such a scoundrel or such a cheater or such a liar, then God would make you a Christian. But since you are, well, it's too bad for you. That can be our attitude toward it as people try. That's a tempt to worship us, and we begin to get praise. I was talking to a friend this week about this very issue, and I said, you know, that's the ultimate end of man in a way is to want to be worshipped. Just worship me. But what a tragedy because we're not worthy of worship. We're going to wrap here. Let's see what happens with Paul and Barnabas. Verse 14. But when the apostles Paul and Barnabas heard of this, they ripped off their clothes and they ran out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. Or they said, Folks, we're just like you. See, the truth is we shouldn't let them worship us. Paul and Barnabas don't. They do this crazy thing where they tear their clothes off of them, you know, like, I'm not sure. Well, that's just an outward sign, obviously, but what a crazy thing. They tear off their clothes, and they, they, they run to the crowd. Look at what it says. They run into the crowd. So, like, maybe they're up front, and they're talking, and they're getting some attention like this, and they just run down and disappear into the crowd, and they're like, no, no, no. That's not what this is about. We're people just like you. We're not gods. The gods haven't come in us, right? That that's not what we're telling you about here. It's a really big deal, and Paul and Barnabas react like that fast. Like, they're not having it. Not having it. We're only men, human like you, right? Let's read on. We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Like, so Paul's like, we're not preaching about ourselves, but God himself, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go on their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness to you by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Boy, that's powerful, isn't it? Wow. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from offering sacrifices to them. He's like, no, God's been for you for a while. He's been blessing you with life to this very day, this very moment. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city, thinking that he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and he went back into the city. Wow. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derb. So here they go, and they're like, don't do this, right? We're just like you. And I just want to say that this becomes uh, the model, I believe, 
one of the primary models that we have to follow as Christians, believing that Jesus is holy and we are not. We have to not let people worship us. We have to step off of pedestals. It's so easy to get onto. It's so easy to have people think of you as better or holier than them. And I absolutely love the testimony of Paul and Barnabas. He says, we're just like you. We're no different. The difference is the God who made us, the living God, is the difference. This should be a primary call of a Christian to not receive worship. I think. If you think I'm wrong, I'd love to hear feedback on it. But I think that that's true. We ought to get out of the way that people might worship God, God's self. That he might get glory for what he did in Jesus Christ and, and not man. That it shouldn't be about the pastor we follow or the one we listen to or the where we go or what, what we do because it's about the God who gave his son that we might be free. The living God who made us and has poured out his grace upon us up to this very moment of our lives. In verse 21, it goes on. They preached the good news in that city and they won a large number of disciples there. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. So here's this continual encouragement in the faith of Jesus Christ, right? Not one and done, not you believe it, now you're saved, now you don't have to worry about it anymore, but this regular encouragement that we could continue in our faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Did you hear it? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting, there it is again, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So it's all about trusting God in everything. After going through uh, Pisidia, Pisidia, uh, they came into uh, Pamphyl Pamphylia when they had uh, preached the word in Perga. They went down to uh, Atalia. Boy, those are some good words right there. 26. From Italia, they went back to Antioch, I like that one, uh, where they had been committed to the grace of God, listen, for the work that they had now completed. So they end up where they started, where they were committed to the grace of God for the work that they were called to do, and which, in fact, they had now done. 27. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples, right? What did they go back and talk about? Man, you can't believe the stuff I just did. It was so cool. Man, we, we, we rocked that place. It was aw That's not what they did, right? They went back and they said, you guys won't believe what God did through us. You guys won't believe the way that God showed up in that moment. You guys can't believe the God we're following together. Like, that was their message, right? Not, wow, wow, look at us, man. We're the coolest. And this is a real tragedy because, ironically, we have turned Paul into this saint that's unattainable for us. But Paul's testimony is, I'm just like you. And the God who saved me is the God who's saving you. Well, that's where we're, uh, we're at today. I, I think that uh, um, we ought to... I asked the question at the beginning. How are Christians different? We're being saved, but we're not different. I know that's a weird thing, right? Like, no, 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 right? We're different. And Jesus is the, yes, yes. But we're just like other humans. We're not different. We're being saved. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray today that uh, if God's going to work in you, he'll keep doing it. I'm going to pray today that you would answer that question, who do you say that he is? Because it matters. And it matters for you, and it matters for eternity. 
Pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your word that does not return void. We thank you for the truth of the gospel and the proclamation of it through the nations, the keeping of promises that Jesus made to his people that through his Holy Spirit, the word be preached and go forth. I pray, Lord Jesus, that this morning, if there are those who are here who have been waffling on that question, or maybe they've decided they don't believe. They're on that side of things. They ran that side of the room. That today your Holy Spirit might break through in a way that they would say, oh, no, wait, you're real because you say you're real. They would believe in you, Father, and not for our sake or my sake or because of this church or because of your gospel, that they would believe the good news because of the Holy Spirit that you would break through in their hearts. They would believe the good news. And Father, for those of us who are being saved, I pray you would make us humble. I pray that we would have the right attitude toward those uh, who are perishing apart from you, that we would not condescend and we would not think it's about us, but we would recognize that it's you and you alone who are worthy of praise and worship, and that we could be uh, effective communicators of your gospel of grace to the nations. Help us to do the work, Father. We love you so much. We only know you because you reveal yourself. We pray for continued revelation in our lives. May you be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.